Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 40, 2 Kings chapter 25, the end of the book. Today concludes our nearly one-year study, almost to the day, of the book of 2 Kings. And it ends with the inevitable exile of Judah to Babylon. Now I say inevitable because the downward spiritual death spiral that first enveloped the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel also infected the southern kingdom of Judah. Thus, the final results of scores of years of idolatry and apostasy could hardly be expected to be different for Judah than for Israel, since ours is a God who establishes patterns. And this is because His justice is not whimsical, it's not random, but instead He is even-handed and He's measured. His justice is also not dispensational. It doesn't change with different eras. Zedekiah, Zidkiah, was the current and the last Jewish king of Israel. He, like all the other recent kings of Judah, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And now he was in the midst of paying the consequences. These consequences not only had the full support of God, but God directly intervened to cause them. Because for now, he was siding with Babylon in order that his redeemed people would be severely punished for their unfaithfulness towards him. Now I want to point out... That Jehovah's judgment upon Judah was not meant to necessarily result in exile. With but minimal obedience, exile could have been avoided. Rather, it was that God put Judah under submission to Babylon and to their king Nebuchadnezzar. This subjugation did not involve the people of Judah being removed from their land. It did not involve the people of Judah no longer having their own king, even one from the line of David. The only reason that subjugation under Babylon escalated to an exile to Babylon was because the government of Judah refused to accept God's just verdict and his punishment of being placed under the yoke of Babylon. God told Judah and their kings that if they would simply accept their divine punishment, that they would live. And they would be allowed to remain in Judah. But if they rebelled against Babylon, they were essentially rebelling against God. And the punishment for this would be exile. We read all of 2 Kings 25 last week. Let's read the parallel account of this that's contained in Jeremiah 52 to begin 
today's lesson. So, open your Bibles to Jeremiah 52. 638 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Six thirty eight if you have a complete Jewish Bible, Jeremiah chapter fifty two. Zedekiah, Zedekiah, was twenty one years old when he began to rule, and he ruled for eleven years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Yermiao, Jeremiah, from Libna. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything that Jehoiakim had done. And it was because of Adonai's anger that all of these things happened to Jerusalem and to Judah until he had thrown them out of his presence. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babel. So in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, marched against Jerusalem with his entire army. He set up camp against it. He built siege towers against it on every side. The city remained under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, when the famine in the city was so severe that there was no food for the people of the land, they broke through into the city. All the soldiers fled. They left the city by night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. And because the Kasdim, the Chaldeans, were surrounding the city, they took the route through the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans went in pursuit of the king and overtook Uh, Zedekiah on the plains near Jericho. All of his troops deserted him. Then they took the king and they brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah in the land of Hamath where he passed judgment on him. And the king of Babylon slaughtered his sons before his eyes. He also slaughtered all the leading men of Judah in Riblah. And then the king of Babylon put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in chains and carried him off to Babylon and kept him in prison until the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which is also the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard and a close associate of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem and he burned down the house of Adonai, the royal palace, all the houses in Jerusalem, every notable person's house he burned to the ground. The whole army of the Chaldeans who were Uh, with the commander of the guard, broke down all the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Nebuzar Adan, the commander of the guard, then deported some of the poor people, the remaining population of the city, the deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the common people. But Nebuzar Adan, the commander of the guard, left behind some of the poor people of the land to be vineyard workers and farmers. The Kasdim, Chaldeans, smashed the bronze columns of the house of Adonai, also the trolleys and the bronze sea that were in the house of Adonai, and they carried their bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, snuffers, basins, pans, all of the bronze articles they had used in worship. The commander of the guard took the cups and the censers and the sprinkling bowls, the pots, the menorahs, 
the pans and the bowls, everything made of gold, everything made of silver, the bronze and the two columns, the one sea and the twelve bronze bulls under the bases, all of which Solomon had made for the house of Adonai, was more than could be weighed. Now as for the columns, the height of one column was 31 and a half feet. It took a 21 foot measuring line to go around it. And its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. On it was a capital of brass, eight and three quarters feet high, with netting and pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second column was similar also with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the outside, while the total number of pomegranates in the netting was 100. The commander of the guard took, uh, took prisoner Seriah, the chief Cohen, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second ranking Cohen, priest and three doorkeepers. And from the city he took an official in charge of the soldiers, seven close associates of the king who had been found in the city, the army commander's secretary in charge of military conscription, and 60 of the common people found inside the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babel in Riblah. There in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king of Babel put them to death. Thus Judah was carried away captive out of the land. The numbers of people deported by Nebuchadnezzar were as follows. In the seventh year, 3,023 persons from Judah. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, 832 persons from Jerusalem. In the twenty-third year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, deported 745 persons from Judah. The total comes to 4,600 persons. And in the thirty-seventh year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah in the twelfth month on the twenty-fifth day of the month Evel Mordach began his reign as king of Babel and in his first year he commuted the sentence of Jehoiakim, king of Judah and he released him from prison he treated him with kindness he gave him a throne higher than those of the other kings there with him in Babylon so Jehoiakim no longer had to wear prison clothes Moreover, he was provided with food as long as he lived, and he was granted a daily allowance by the king of Babel to spend on his other needs for as long as he lived until the day of his death. <clears throat> now, verse 3 is key. So I'm going to remind us of it again. There it says in Jeremiah 52.3, And it was because of Adonai's anger that all of these things happened to Jerusalem and to Judah until he'd thrown them out of his presence. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babel. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar were God's earthly agents carrying out his will. The Lord had had it with Judah. His patience had ended. His anger erupted. Babylon was not to be blamed they weren't to be counted as wicked as most of the rabbis try to do to this day for subjugating Judah. Now in time, Babylon would be dealt with by the Lord for their wickedness of heathenism. But not for subjugating God's people because he had intended for this to happen. King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to Zedekiah's rebellion was quite natural. He sent his army to take back control of Jerusalem and Judah. It was in winter. It was on the 10th day of the 10th month of the year, Tibet. 
that Jerusalem was surrounded and was put under siege. Now a siege is different than an all-out attack. Rather than having an ongoing day-to-day battle, the purpose of a siege is to try and starve the residents who have elected to hunker down behind the massive defensive city walls. The city sealed off. No one can get in, no one can get out. The hope is that at some point the people will get desperate enough to open the gates, surrender. The alternative is that so many die and the remainder are so weakened that an attack is easier to pull off. Well, Jerusalem was surrounded on January the 10th of 588 BC. And the city finally fell on the ninth day of the fourth month of 586 BC. Now, on the surface, it was an 18 month siege. But we find in Jeremiah 37 that there was a brief interruption of the siege that gave the city residents an opportunity to restock their food supplies and their armaments before it started up again. So in Jeremiah 37, 5 through 10, we hear this. At the same time, Pharaoh's army marched out of Egypt. And when the Kostim besieging Jerusalem heard about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. Then this word of Adonai came to the prophet Jeremiah. Adonai, the God of Israel, says to tell the king of Judah who sent you to me to consult me. Pharaoh's army has marched out to assist you, but they will return to Egypt to their own country. The Kostim, the Chaldeans, will return and attack this city and capture it and they'll burn it to the ground. Here's what Adonai says. Don't deceive yourselves by thinking that the Chaldeans must withdraw from you because they will not withdraw. Even if you were to strike the entire army of the Chaldeans uh, fighting against you to the degree that only their wounded were left, they would still rise up every man from his tent and burn this city to the ground. Zedekiah turned to Egypt for their help violating God's instructions since the time of their exodus that they were never to seek Egypt never for their aid or their deliverance in Deuteronomy 17 14 through 16 it says when you have entered the land that Adonai your God is giving you have taken possession of it and you are living there you may say I want to have a king over me like all the other nations around me In that event, you must appoint as king the one whom Adonai, your God, will choose. He must be one of your kinsmen, this king you appoint over you. You are forbidden to appoint a foreigner over you who is not your kinsman. However, he is not to acquire many horses for himself or to have the people return to Egypt to obtain more horses inasmuch as Adonai told you never to go back that way again. So the short time out of the siege of Jerusalem caused by the Egyptians requiring Nebuchadnezzar's attention did little more than prolong the event. The end result remained the same. Now, I want to briefly detour to discuss a word that I said a couple of lessons ago we would. Chaldeans. Chaldeans is but but an English translation of the Hebrew word Kazdim. 
And Kazdim is but a Hebrewized form of the Assyrian word Matkaldi. The word is going to be used throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, but it also has special significance in the New Testament because it identifies the Magi coming to worship the infant Yeshua as being Kazdim, Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? Well, Chaldea was the name of a Mesopotamian country that at one time was independent. And it was located on the lower Tigris and Euphrates. It spread out along the northern edge of the Persian Gulf. And for most of biblical history, it was part of Babylonia. Sometimes as a vassal kingdom, but it was finally fully absorbed as, as merely a district of Babylonia. So it's not unlike Israel during David's day when there were 12 individually named tribal districts that had some autonomy, but yet they were part of a national federation called Israel. So while a person might call themselves a Judahite, they would also see themselves as an Israelite. And yet they were too proud of their personal tribal heritage to necessarily want to be lumped in with all of the other 11 tribes. The Chaldeans, interestingly, were descended from Shem. The Chaldeans were Semites, cousins of the Hebrews. They had a strong enough culture that they maintained a separate identity and a separate language for centuries, even after they were assimilated into the kingdom of Babylonia. However, by the time now that we get to the book of Second Kings, all of Babylon was speaking a common language, Aramaean, or as we call it today, Aramaic. However, due to the immense popularity of the Strong's exhaustive concordance, which chose to call the language of Babylonia Chaldean, it's confused the matter. Rather, so-called biblical Chaldean is actually just Aramaic. What we find is that people who lived in the Chaldea district of Babylonia tended to identify themselves as Chaldeans as opposed to Babylonians. But in general, that was only a, a, a social political viewpoint at that time. So it's fine from a general sense for a Bible student to understand that except for special instances, Babylonian and Chaldean basically means the same thing. On the other hand, the people of the district of Chaldea maintained a very proud heritage. You know, it's not unlike French people who live in Paris. They prefer to identify themselves more as Parisians than Frenchmen. But of course understand that they are part of France. Even so, it is well known that Parisians speak a, a more formal form of French with certain nuances in the way they pronounce words that identifies them as Parisians. In fact, I have personally witnessed a Belgian person 
whose native language was French, get absolutely snubbed by a Parisian because they looked down on that Belgian as speaking what for them was an improper and hackneyed form of French. But over time, the issue of what a Chaldean was transformed in the Bible. When the Babylonian Empire became absorbed into the Persian Empire, and this of course included the district of Chaldea, the name Chaldean lost its meaning as the name of a somewhat distinct group of people, and it came to be applied as a class of society. The Persians found these Chaldeans to be masters of reading and writing, and especially versed in all forms of incantation, in sorcery, in witchcraft, all the magical arts. The Chaldean religion revolved around the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. So the Persians quite naturally spoke of astrologists and astronomers as Chaldeans. It therefore resulted that the term Chaldean came to mean astrologist. So, so that's, that is the sense that it was meant when we arrive at Jesus' day. And that's why the Magi who came to follow the star and find the new king were called Chaldeans. It was just a common term of the times to identify people from an area of Babylon who were known as professional astronomers. So let's return now from our detour back to 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. Here, when the Chaldeans are spoken of, it means a certain district of Babylon where the people prefer to be called Chaldeans. Well, the timeline of the Chaldeans besieging Jerusalem is that on the ninth day of the fourth month of the year 586 BC, starvation had finally set in. And due to the weakened condition of the city's inhabitants, the Babylonian troops attacked and they were able to get inside the city walls. The king of Judah and his personal guard fled heading towards the Arabah, that lower end of the Jordan Rift Valley. But as they approached Jericho, the Babylonian troops caught up with them. King Zedekiah found himself alone as his royal bodyguard deserted him. They fled for their own lives. Melech Zedekiah was arrested. He was taken to Rivlah where his sons were executed in front of him, and then he was blinded. Well, the siege of Yerushalayim was terrible. Terrible. The Book of Lamentations makes comment on the inhumane conditions that the residents faced. For instance, we read this in Lamentations 2, 17-22. Adonai has done what he planned. There's some strong words to think about. He has fulfilled his promise, which he decreed in ancient times. He has destroyed without pity 
He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has filled your foes with pride. Their hearts cried out to Adonai, Wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no respite. Give your eyes no rest. Get up. Cry out in the night at the beginning of every watch. Pour your heart out like water before the face of Adonai. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your babies who are fainting away from hunger on every street corner. Adonai, look and see who it is you have thus tormented. Should women eat the fruit of their wombs, the children they've held in their hands? Should priests and prophets be slaughtered in the sanctuary of Adonai? Youths and old men are lying on the ground in the streets. My unmarried women and young men have fallen by the sword. You killed them on the day of your anger. You slaughtered them without pity. You have summoned my terrors from every direction as on a festival day. On the day of Adonai's anger, not one escaped. Not one survived. The children I held in my arms that I raised, my enemy has destroyed. Then we read in Lamentations 4, 9-13. through 13, Those slain by the sword are better off than those who are dying from hunger. Since they waste away as if pierced through for lack of food from the fields, with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children. Their children became their food when the daughter of my people was destroyed. Adonai has finished with his fury. He has poured out his blazing wrath. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its very foundations. The kings of the earth could not believe it. Neither could anyone living in the world. That enemy or foe would ever enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets, the offenses of her priests, who within her walls shed the blood of the righteous. Well, after capturing Zedekiah, killing his sons, blinding him, on the tenth day of Av, the, the fifth month of the year 586 BC, the commander of the Babylonian forces, Nefuzar Adan, destroyed the holy temple. And the city walls of Jerusalem were torn down, but they had remained intact up till now. Most of the remaining people were sent to Babylon, however, many were allowed to stay in order to care for the fields and the orchards and the vineyards and keep the mines operating. The enormous brass columns that ordained the entry to the temple were chopped up in pieces, taken to Babylon, as was every last temple object of value. Even the famous bronze sea, that huge laver of water that sat outside the temple doors for ritual use by the priests, it was cut up and taken away. The chief priest, Sir Yah, his second in command, Zechariah, 
three doorkeepers, along with the head commander of the city's soldiers, seven members of King Zedekiah's government, a number of others. They were all executed in reprisal and in order to dissolve the social fabric of the community. And thus in verse 21 are but a handful of words that bring us to an end of an era. Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his land. His land. What a sad and glorious day. God's kingdom was now emptied of the kingdom people. From the Negev in the south to Mount Hermon in the north, the promised land went into dormancy because God's people had abandoned him. So he reacted in wrath. But let's be clear, and I'm going to be covering this in detail in that special five-part series starting next Sunday for you, the local congregation, but again, it will not appear on the Torah class website. The promised land was not now, it never would be completely devoid of Hebrews. A remnant of Jews was intentionally left in Judah by the Babylonians. And a remnant of the ten tribes of the north also managed to evade the much earlier Assyrian exile for various reasons. In both cases, these were relatively small numbers of people, but exactly how many is not known. There was some intermarriage between these remnants of the various Israelite tribes, but also intermarriage between them and foreigners who had moved into the largely vacated towns and cities. But the vast bulk of all 12 tribes, easily 90%, probably over 95%, were exiled to foreign lands and there they remained. Now it's vital to understand that in the Bible, while God's principles and his moral code are absolute, the historical narratives concerning Israel are not. For instance, the word all only in the rarest instances ever means 100%. The Bible speaks of the exiles and in the movements of people in generalities, not in absolutes. Thus we read in 2 Kings 25-22 that because Nebuchadnezzar left behind a remnant of Jews that we could probably characterize as caretakers of the land, then there needed to be somebody in charge of them. And he appointed a fellow named Gedaliah as that person. And Gedaliah was already an influential member of the government of Judah, and he was a devout Jew. However, equally certain, he must have expressed a sincere willingness to be subservient to Babylon. And by all accounts, this subservience was because he believed the prophet Jeremiah, that God had ordered Judah to submit to Babylon. But notice he was given the title of governor not king. He worked directly for Nebuchadnezzar. Judah was no longer a vassal state with a vassal king that had some measure of independence. It was a conquered and decimated province that would have a caretaker government to simply be sure that the land was worked so that Babylon 
would gain some good out of the fertile fields and the mature orchards. Gedal Yao was from a prominent family, and his father was part of the embassy that was sent to inquire of the prophetess Hulda, and his grandfather was a scribe for King Josiah. But this aristocratic family was not royalty, and this would soon prove to be a, a, a major problem. Now, interestingly, we find that the prophet Jeremiah was a big supporter of Gedalyu. Some of it was no doubt because Gedalyu's father had saved Jeremiah from a mob who wanted to kill him because of his prophetic warnings of doom for Judah. In Jeremiah 26, verses 22 through 24, we read this. Jehoiakim, the king, sent men to Egypt. El-Natan, the son of Akbor, and some others. They brought uh, Uriel back from Egypt and took him to Jehoiakim, the king, who put him to the sword and then threw his corpse into the burial ground of the common people. But in this situation concerning Jeremiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, used his influence to help him so that he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. 2 Kings 25-23 introduces us to two groups of people. The first is a group of soldiers and officers of the Jewish armies that had escaped the Babylonian forces and they'd gone into hiding. There was also another group that was led by a fellow named Ishmael. And as we're soon going to see, the military people were quite willing to accept Gedaliah's leadership and Babylon's dominance. But Ishmael, his people were not. And the reason's quite simple. Ishmael was a member of David's royal dynasty. And he felt that he and not Gedaliah had the right to rule over the remaining Jews in the land. For him, Gedaliah was a disloyal usurper of the throne of Judah. Well, a meeting was held in Mitzpah of these various factions of Jewish leadership that had returned to the land once the war with Babylon was over. And there were a number of places named Mitzpah, but this Mitzpah was about eight miles north of Jerusalem. It was to be Gedaliah's seat of government since Jerusalem was basically uninhabitable at this moment. The military men, Ishmael and some other leaders, came along with their followers to powwow with Gedalio. And he made an oath to them that as long as they wouldn't rebel or cause trouble for Babylon, they would not be harmed. In fact, they were fully free to go resettle Judah. See, there was so much abandoned land that these men could have prospered. And to put this in more modern terms, it was Gedaliah's assignment to get Judah to be economically viable again. This would benefit Babylon. But it also meant that Judah could remain predominantly Jewish if enough of the refugees returned and started a new life there. However, not everybody shared Gedaliah's vision and his passion to restore the land 
but underneath the control of a foreign king. So in the seventh month, only two months after the fall of Jerusalem, Ishmael came and he assassinated Gedaliel. Let's read about this in Jeremiah 41. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 41. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 613. Jeremiah 41. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, the son of Elishama, of royal blood, and one of the chief officials of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliel in Mitzpah. And while eating a meal together there in Mitzpah, Ishmael and the ten men with him rose and attacked Gedaliel, the son of Achikam, the son of Shaphan, struck him with their swords and assassinated the man whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor of the land. Ishmael also murdered all the Judeans who were with Gedaliel at Mitzpah, as well as all the Chaldean soldiers they found there. And the next day, before his assassination of Gedaliel had become known, 80 men from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Shomron came with beards shaved off, clothes torn, and gashes on their bodies. They had grain offerings and frankincense with them to present in the house of Adonai. Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, went out from Mitzpah to meet them, weeping all along the way. And on meeting them, he said to them, Come, come to Gedaliel, the son of Ahicham. But once they were inside the city, Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, and the men with him slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. However, ten of them said to Ishmael, Don't kill us, for we have stores of wheat and barley and olive oil and honey hidden out in the field. So he relented and did not kill them along with their comrades. The cistern in which Ishmael threw the corpses of the men he had murdered with Gedaliel was the one Asa the king had made in fear of Baasha, king of Israel. It was this cistern that Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, filled with the slaughtered men. And then Ishmael carried off captive the rest of the people in Mitzpah, the king's daughters, all the people left in Mitzpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, had committed to the care of Gedaliel, the son of Achikam. Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, carried them off captive and left to cross over to the people of Ammon. Now when Jonathan, the son of uh, Kareach, and all the military commanders with him heard of these crimes committed by Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, they took all the men and went to attack Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu. They found him by a big pool in Gibeon. When all of Ishmael's captives saw Yohanan, all right, John, if you would, John, the son of Kariach, and all the military commanders with him, they were overjoyed. So all the people Ishmael carried off captive from Mitzpah turned and joined Yochanan, the son of Kariach. But Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, escaped from Yochanan with eight men and went on to the people of Ammon. Yochanan, the son of Kariach, and the military commanders with him then took all the rest of the people he had freed from Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, those Ishmael had taken from Mitzpah after assassinating Gedaliel, the son of Achikam, the heroes, the soldiers, the women, the children, the officers he had brought back from Gibeon, and they left there to stay at 
Kimham's lodge near Beit Lechem, intending to go on to Egypt and thus escape the Chaldeans. They were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Achikam, who the king of Babylon had appointed governor of the land. In addition to murdering Gedaliah, Ishmael killed all the Judahites who were serving with Gedaliah. Plus, he killed a garrison of Babylonian soldiers that was stationed there. This was not his attempt to gain power. This was about shame and honor. This was about Ishmael feeling he had been wronged since he was a descendant of David. It was also that Ishmael and his men felt that Gedaliah was betraying the Jewish people by being a loyal servant to Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer of Judah. And so all who sided with Gedaliah were also killed. But then we hear of even more atrocity. Some other Jews who had fled the war were coming back as mourners with offerings to be presented at the temple in Jerusalem. They were mourning the exile and the destruction. But they did not seem to know that the temple was destroyed, that the priests had been killed. Ishmael pretended to join them in their mournful procession, and once he got them near to Mitzpah, he slaughtered them, figuring them as collaborators. Ten of them survived because they promised to give Ishmael and his raiders a hidden cache of food. The people who remained alive and in Judah were now caught between a rock and a hard place. Would Nebuchadnezzar blame them for killing his governor and that garrison of Babylonian soldiers? Would Ishmael find them and finish off the job? So they went to the prophet Jeremiah and they asked him to beseech God for them that they might receive directions to be delivered. They promised Jeremiah whatever God instructed them they would do, whether it sounded good or bad to them. Open your Bibles back up now to Jeremiah 42, 1 through 16, and we're going to read how this all went down. Page 614 in the complete Jewish Bible. Jeremiah 42, starting with verse 1. Then all the military commanders, Yochanan, the son of Kariach, Zaninyah, the son of Hoshaya, and all the people, from the least to the greatest, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, I beg you, approve our request. Pray for us to Adonai, your God, for all of this remnant. For while once we were numerous, only a few of us are left, as you can see. Pray that Adonai, your God, will tell us what direction to take, what to do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I hear you. All right, I'll pray to Adonai, your God, as you have asked. And whatever Adonai answers you, I'll tell you. I'll withhold nothing from you. And they said to Jeremiah, May Adonai be a true and faithful witness against us if we fail to do any part of what Adonai, your God, gives you to tell us. Whether it be good or bad, We'll listen to what Adonai, our God, says. We are dispatching you to him 
so that things will go well with us as we heed what Adonai our God says. Ten days later, the word of Adonai came to Jeremiah. So he called Yochanan, the son of Kariach, all the military commanders with him and all the people from the least to the greatest, and he said to them, You sent me to present your request to Adonai, the God of Israel. Well, this is what he says. If you will stay in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you. I will not uproot you. For I am relenting from the calamity that I inflicted on you. Don't be afraid of the king of Babel, of whom you are afraid. Don't be afraid of him, said I, for I am with you to save you and now to rescue you from his power. I'll take pity on you so that he will take pity on you and he will cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, we will not stay in this land, thereby not heeding what Adonai your God is saying, and instead say, no, we'll go to the land of Egypt, because there we will not see war, or hear the sound of the shofar sounding its alarm, or we won't be short of food, so we'll stay there. Then hear what Adonai says, remnant of Judah. This is what Adonai, Sevaot, the God of Israel says, if you're determined to go to Egypt and stay there, the sword of which you are afraid will overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid will pursue you relentlessly there in Egypt. And there you will die. The plan of the survivors was to flee to Egypt and to seek Egypt's protection. God told him through Jeremiah that'd be the worst mistake they ever made. That everything they sought to escape from in Judah, they would experience in Egypt. Rather, the Lord put them to the test. Trust me. Trust me. I'll assure you, despite all your fears, you won't die. You will live. Stay here in Judah. Don't go to Egypt. And what did they do? When Jeremiah told them of God's response, this is what happened. When Jeremiah had finished telling all the people everything Adonai their God had said, which Adonai their God had sent him to tell them, this is in Jeremiah 43.1, the entire speech cited above, then Azariah the son of Hoshiah, Yochanan the son of Kariach, and all the men with him had the effrontery to say to Jeremiah, you are lying. Adonai our God did not send you to say don't go to Egypt and live there. Hmm. They didn't hear what they expected to hear. So they called Jeremiah a liar. And they made it clear that they were going to take matters into their own hands and deliver themselves by seeking asylum in Egypt. A wonder how often we pray for God to give us an answer to a desire, maybe to a challenge. But when we don't like the answer, we do 
what we always intended on doing anyway. Or we seek counsel from a pastor or from an elder and we walk away pretty perturbed because they told us the very thing we didn't want to hear. So we get angry with them. We go to somebody else and we keep going to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else till we finally get permission to do what we wanted to do all along. I must say that at this point in 2 Kings, it's almost if the writer, editor of the book felt like it was time for some good news. Everything has been so dark and seemingly hopeless. So in verse 27, we hear that King Jehoiakim had been held in the Babylonian prison for 37 years was released by a new king in Babylon, Evel Merdach. No motive for this mercy is given. He gave him good quarters, supplied him food that was fit for the royal table. In fact, of all the kings, of all the conquered nations who were required to live kind of on house arrest, if you would, in Babylon, Jehoiachin was given the highest status. The rabbis say that this was an encouragement from God. It was a message of hope for all exiles of Israel and Judah in whatever era and wherever they may have been scattered. I second that motion. I want to close now the book of our study on 2 Kings with just such a message of hope from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a message of hope for all Hebrews. It's a message of hope and it's a message to repent. A message to repent for all followers of Christ who have believed and held on to that erroneous man-made doctrine that God is through with Israel. And instead, he's given all of his promises, all of his blessings to the Gentile church. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 25, which is on page 201. Deuteronomy 4, chapter 25. We're going to read down to verse 40. When you've had children and grandchildren, you've lived a long time in the land, but you've become corrupt. You made a carved image, a representation of something, and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai your God, and you've provoked him. I call on the sky and the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days there, but will be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples and among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away. You will be left few in number. There you will serve gods which are the product of human hands. 
made out of wood and stone, which can't see or hear, eat or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and being. And in your distress, when all of these things have come upon you, in the Ahrit Hayamin, the world to come, you will return to your to Adonai your God and listen to what he says. For Adonai your God is a merciful God. He will not fail you. He will not destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them. Indeed, inquire about the past before you were born. Since the day God created human beings on earth, from one end of heaven to the other, has there ever been anything as wonderful as this? Has anyone heard anything like it? Did any other people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of a fire? As you have have heard and you stayed alive? Or has God ever tried to go and take for Himself a nation from the very bowels of another nation? By means of ordeals and signs and wonders and war, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm and great terrors, like all that Adonai your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. This was shown to you so that you would know that Adonai is God. There is no other beside Him. From heaven He caused you to hear His voice in order that He could instruct you. And on earth He caused you to see His great fire and you heard His very words coming out from that fire. Because He loved your ancestors, chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt with His presence in great power in order to drive out ahead of you nations greater and stronger than you so that He could bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance as is the case today. Know today and establish it in your heart that Adonai is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Therefore, you are to keep His laws and His commandments, which I'm giving you today, so that it will go well with you and your children after you so that you will prolong your days in the land Adonai is giving, your God is giving you forever.